this morning, Lord Jesus, that is the truth that we just sang, that in your presence we come alive. And so Jesus, this morning as we gather together in this place or, or we tune in online, we just invite your presence here. We invite your spirit to, to lead us and to meet each and every one of us exactly where we are Lord, we ask for you to minister to us, that, that you would speak to our deep need. If we're afraid, that you would speak courage to that fear. If we need hope, we pray that you would allow us to, to lean into you and receive you as the source of our hope. And Jesus, we just give you this time. We ask that you would speak to us through your word, that even as we've gathered together, we've sung your praises. We, we just want to say thank you for the ability to worship you today. Please meet us here in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, go ahead and grab a seat. It is wonderful to be with you today. My name's Mike. I'm one of the pastors on the team, and I love being on this journey with you. Uh, if you would, grab your notes out of your handout, and you see we're, we're continuing to march along. We're, we're studying the life of Joseph. Subtitle of this series, God Still Has a Plan. That was true then. It's always true. What we found, of course, is that this life, this episode of a life 4,000 years ago is just incredibly relevant, and, and uh, there's so many lessons for us today, and so we're really excited about what God has been doing through this series as I begin, I, I do want to uh, let you know, and, and for some of you who I've been able to journey with and, and we've become friends over the years, you probably already know this about me, but when I was 16 years old, I discovered a series of books called The Lord of the Rings, and I fell head over heels in love. I, I literally devoured these books. I, I would lock myself into my room. I would, I would read these books after school every day. My parents, if they wanted to punish me, couldn't send me to my room because that's where I wanted to be anyway. They'd have to be like, put the book down. You get out here. Hang out with your brother. You know, like uh, that was punishment sometimes. So the... Uh, the, the, the thing is, is I felt like th these books, they just swept me into adventure. I felt like I was on the journey with the characters in these books. And, and so I remember when I finished the second book, The Two Towers, I put it aside. I went to the bookstore. Do you guys remember those? They actually used to have them. I went to the bookstore and I bought the third book and I walked up to the counter just wondering how this series was going to end and I saw the title of the third book, The Return of the King, and my heart thrilled because I thought, what if this is about the return of the king? And I was so excited because it was about that and, 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 and this book, it just wrapped up all of the loose ends. It provided perfect resolution for, for the journeyman. It was a perfect, satisfying kind of an ending. And I did a little research about other movies and books that, that had perfect endings. And what's amazing is there are all kinds of lists about perfect endings, but they're all about endings like with a twist at the end, or you didn't expect something to happen. Movies like The Sixth Sense, and people go, oh, I knew all, the t all along. I knew all along. You did not know. All along, you had no idea. 
Or movies like uh, Citizen Kane, you know, Rosebud. Who cares about his sled? Like I, like, I mean, there's just so many of those things. But, but only, and I'm not talking about the Lord of the Rings movies, although they're good and wonderful in, in, in their own right. I'm talking about the books with the perfect, satisfying tying up of all loose ends. It was just, to me, it was just absolutely amazing. And that's why on the wall in my office, I have Lord of the Rings artwork signed by the artist. I've got an Aragorn replica sword hanging right above my hobbit feet slippers that I keep there. And my Lord of the Rings, you know, elven ears, you know, that, never mind. I, I actually don't wear the elf ears, uh, as far as you know. I, I, um, I'm a nerd, but not that far gone. So the, the whole point of all this is that as you jump into the life of Joseph, you see in many ways that there's, there's, a, there's a symmetry or it's, it's a little bit analogous to this journey, say, that Frodo's on, where he goes from, from unpleasant experience to unpleasant experience, where, where the adventure he signed up with isn't at all the adventure that he ends up taking. And yet, despite all of the twists and turns in the road, Joseph chooses hope. And it provides tangible expression in his life. And, and throughout the entire thing, he has this confidence that God still has a plan for him. And I bring all this up because maybe that is the lesson that we just need the most today. Right? We just need that reality that, that God still has a plan and we can choose to live in hope in him. And so as we jump into Genesis, we're in chapter 41 today. Where we have left Joseph is in prison. And he was in prison. Remember, he was wrongfully accused. He's unjustly in prison. And while he's there, he meets a cupbearer and a baker. They have dreams. He helps interpret their dreams. He was very hopeful that the cupbearer, after the cupbearer gets out of prison, that the cupbearer would be able to say something to Pharaoh, and then he would be able to get out of prison. But as we jump into this chapter, you'll see that that did not happen. The cupbearer has forgotten Joseph. And this is what it says in chapter 41 of Genesis, verse 1. It says, Two full years later. Let's just stop right there for a moment. Last week we talked about Bible time a little bit. We talked about how Bible time is not the same as the way we experience time. And it wasn't an entirely helpful or encouraging kind of a topic to, to, to raise. And, and yet it's so relevant to us. Because we're, when we're in the midst of a difficult situation, we're in the midst of a painful situation, if we're in the midst of a season where we feel like we're struggling or we're hurting or our loved ones are struggling or hurting or maybe there's fear and uncertainty in any of those kinds of places, then, then being patient and being steadfast and enduring, that becomes a lot harder for us to do. And yet, that's why the scripture encourages us to look to Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith, that, that he's the one that we focus on, that he's the one that we draw strength from. And the scripture says this in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 3. It says, consider him, consider Jesus, consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary 
and lose heart. You might want to circle those phrases, not grow weary, not lose heart, right? And we draw strength from Jesus. That's how we don't grow weary. We look to him, and that's how we don't lose heart. And I say all this at the very beginning because maybe that's what some of us needed to be reminded of today, that our work is not done. Our journey is not over. God has not closed the book on us yet. Our, our hope, and we, we've talked about this a lot, our hope has never been in an election. It's never been in a nation. It's never been in any human institutions. Our hope has always been in Jesus himself. So friends, let's lean into him and let's take heart in him and let's consider Jesus today and renew our strength in him today. Can I get an amen? Can I get a, that's, that's true right there. Okay, yeah. Thank you, several of you. Thank you. Uh, dozens of clapping hands at, at that moment. Now, let's go back into this because here's Joseph and we left him in prison, Remember? And what did he do to get in prison? Nothing. He, he resisted temptation, but now he's in prison. So that's where he's been. And he's been there for years. Okay, a, a full two years later, right? And so here it says, two full years later, Pharaoh dreamed that he was standing on the bank of the Nile River. In his dream, he saw seven fat, healthy cows come up out of the river and begin grazing in the marsh grass. Then he saw seven more cows come up behind them from the Nile. But these were scrawny and thin. These cows stood beside the fat cows on the riverbank. Then the scrawny, thin cows ate the seven healthy fat cows. At this point in the dream, Pharaoh woke up. It was a little disconcerting, obviously, to see that in his dream. And Pharaoh not only has this dream, but he actually has a second dream. And the second dream, very similar to the first, but it's about grains of wheat instead of healthy cows or skinny cows. And I was saying it's interesting that in Joseph's life, Dreams always come in twos, right? They always come in twos. And before I started studying the life of Joseph, I, I, I was always confused as to why the dreams came in twos. But then I thought, you know, the animals came in twos to Noah's ark. And Jesus sent his disciples out two by two. And it, the book of Ecclesiastes says two are better than one. And there's a snappy song that says, it takes two to make a thing go right. And the point I'm trying to make is you need to be in a life group. That's just what the Bible says. So when Pharaoh wakes up, he is so disturbed by his dream that he calls all of his magicians and his wise men and his counselors into court. He tells them the dream. None of them can interpret his dreams. And in the midst of Pharaoh's distress and in the midst of his counselors being unable to help, the cupbearer suddenly gets struck with a thought like a lightning bolt. He's like, oh, Joseph. I forgot all about Joseph. Two years ago, he interpreted a dream for me. He interpreted a dream for the, the baker, and, and they both came true. And, and I forgot all about him. I'm so sorry. But he tells Pharaoh about Joseph, and so then Joseph gets summoned out of prison. And, and they take Joseph, and they kind of clean him up. They give him a fresh robe. They give him a fresh shave, and they bring him before Pharaoh. It says in verse 14, Pharaoh sent for Joseph at once. And he was quickly brought from the prison. After he had shaved and changed his clothes, he went in and stood before Pharaoh. 
Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, I had a dream last night, and no one here can tell me what it means. But I have heard that when you hear about a dream, you can interpret it. Look what his response is. It is beyond my power to do this, Joseph replied, but God can tell you what it means and set you at ease. So notice his response. It is beyond my power to do this. This is not an example of false humility. This is an example of Joseph being very aware of the source of his ability. The source of his ability was God. And, and so God is the, the recipient of all glory, any glory that can happen in Joseph's life. God's going to receive the glory because God is the source of his ability. And, and this is not false humility, friends. This is actual humility. It's, it's a beautiful picture of what being humble looks like, of what being humble feels like authentically, and, and I want you to notice this, if you're filling in the blanks, if this is actually the source of our peace. You see, peace comes from being humble. Peace comes from being confident in the Lord. Peace comes from knowing that it's from God who gives us all ability, all strength, who allows us to face anything that we face, that there's this incredible amount of peace that comes from this humility before the Lord. And I, I just want you to understand that God wants us to live with this kind of peace. The, the, the Bible is really clear that we are to be anxious for nothing, right? That there's all of this encouragement to be at peace. And I found this uh, from C.S. Lewis about humility. It says, true humility is not thinking less of yourself. It is thinking of yourself less. And so this being humble before the Lord, it's not that you pretend you can't do anything. It's not that, you, you know, you're just, ah, shucks your way through life. It's that you understand that the strengths you have, the abilities you have, the gifts that you have, they are actually gifts from God to you. So you think of yourself less. It's not that you can prop yourself up, but you just think of God more. Or you think of others more. You think of how to make a difference more. You're thinking of these other things more. And, and yourself less. And I want to give you three examples of ways in which this is true, that, that God is the source of our abilities. The first is in the area of creativity. Creativity. So many of you are so creative. You're creative in humor. You're creative in artistic expression. You're creative as you develop music. You're creative as you write and, and you influence others with your writing. You're creative in how you do leadership in your work context. There's so much creativity in this room. But I want you to understand that every single expression of creativity flows from the one true original creator. The God who created you. The God who created all of the universe. And so we have received his creativity. He's planted it within us. Actually, it was J.R.R. Tolkien, the man who wrote Lord of the Rings, he also wrote this, that every single expression of human creativity is more accurately defined as sub-creativity under the umbrella of a creative God. God who is perpetually creative has invested his creativity into us, and therefore every one of your creative expressions is actually an act of worship for the God who created everything. 
And at Overlake, we've got so many who have incredible creativity. Uh, R.C. is one of our young leaders in our young adults ministry. He was an intern, and he also is gifted with artistic expression. And so every time he is able to create these beautiful works of art, it's a form of expression to the God who is creative. All glory goes to God, the source of this gift. The second way we see this is in athletic prowess or strength. And, and so you recognize that these athletes that devote their lives to honing their minds and, and to developing their bodies for a specific uh, field of play or competition, that yes, they do the hard work, and yes, they're putting in the diligence, but they did not create their own bodies. Their bodies were gifts given to them. And, and God is the one who is the source of power. God's the one who's the source of strength. God is the one who is the source of our minds being able to be honed and disciplined in such a way. So that actually those forms of athletic expression are, are beautiful forms of worship and honor to the God who created our bodies in the first place. I had a chance to see this. We, we have a young leader in our student ministries named Derek Hamer. Derek Hamer's a running back for the local high school team, the Woodenville Falcons, and they just won on Friday night uh, in the playoff. They're, they're actually rolling toward the state championships now. They've won 11 games in a row. Come on, somebody. Come on. But Derek is an expression of somebody who, who turns the glory back to God who recognizes that God is the one who has given him, you know, the source of his strength and his athletic prowess. The third area that I want to focus on is wealth creation. Because many of us are good at wealth creation. I said many of us, but you need to know that's not true of me. Many of you are good at wealth creation. You're, you're good at understanding how money works, how to generate it, how to invest it. You've got maybe uh, because of your education or maybe because of your intuitive understanding of how economies work. You just know how this thing works. And so you're able to generate wealth. You're able to steward wealth. You're able to invest wealth well. And I, I just know some of you. I know the journeys that you've been on. I, I've seen it in your life. In fact, I want to highlight a couple more overlakers. This is Jay and Hannah, and they've served in Kenya earlier this year, both committed to Jesus, both have thriving businesses, and their goal is to support orphan care ministry with their wealth creation and impact 1,000 young lives through this ministry. And that's a beautiful expression, right? But, but the reason why I'm bringing this up is because whatever you're good at, Whatever you've developed and whatever you utilize, you need to realize the abilities you have, the talents and the strengths that you have, your giftedness, it is all a gift originating from God. Therefore, he receives the glory. Look at this verse from Deuteronomy 8.17. You may say to yourself, my power and the strength of my hands have produced this wealth for me. But remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you the ability. Please circle that phrase. It is he who gives you the ability to produce wealth. And friends at Overlake, this is why we worship first. This is why we worship as a first response to anything and everything because it's God who gives us the ability. It's God who should receive all the glory for everything, right? And so we, we start with worshiping first. So Joseph says, God can interpret this dream, but then he tells Pharaoh, God can tell you what it means to set you at ease. 
You see, that's the heart of God. The heart of God is not for Pharaoh to live in agitation. The heart of God is to set Pharaoh at ease. And that's God's heart for you, and that's God's heart for me. That the Lord desires to set us at ease. And there's a way that we can receive this, if you're filling in the blanks. Peace comes from moving in faith. Peace comes from moving forward in faith. And so we see this in the life of Joseph, but you need to understand what Joseph understood is that God is at work, and so we can move forward in faith, trusting and depending upon him. The Bible tells us to be anxious for nothing. The Bible tells us don't worry about anything. In fact, what Jesus tells us is this from John 14, 27, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. Jesus wants us to be at peace. The Lord wants to set us at ease. But I want you to note that peace so often comes from moving forward in faith. From a deep dependence upon the Lord and then moving forward. Actually being engaged in the solution to whatever it is, the challenge that you happen to be facing. Because what happens when we're idle, when we just sit still, when we just rest and twiddle our thumbs, that's when anxiety pounces. That's when our fears seem most real. When we isolate, when we withdraw, when we, when we stay still, that's when everything seems scariest and darkest and bleakest. But yet when we begin to move forward in faith, trusting in the Lord the entire time, that's when we receive peace. That's when we receive peace because we're being a part of the solution that God wants us to be. I found this quote from Dietrich Bonhoeffer, a German theologian. It says this, There is no way to peace along the way of safety, for peace must be dared. It is itself the great venture and can never be safe. Peace is the opposite of security. To demand guarantees is to want to protect oneself. Peace means giving oneself completely to God's commandment, wanting no security, but in faith and obedience, laying the destiny of the nations in the hand of Almighty God, not trying to direct it for selfish purposes. Battles are won not with weapons, but with God. They are won when the way leads to the cross. Come on. It's powerful. That's powerful right there. This picture of taking risks and being willing to sacrifice, moving forward. And our faith is not in ourselves, but our faith is in a big God that we serve. A God who laid down his life for us. And that's where our peace comes from. It says the way of the cross. Our peace comes from the Prince of Peace himself. The one who models this way of life for us. Moving forward, taking risks on behalf of those he wanted to serve. And so Joseph moves forward in faith. He's humble. He says, I can't do it. God can do it. God wants to do it to bring you peace, he says. But then he goes, now let's interpret some dreams, shall we? Because I trust God, because I'm walking with God, I'm humble before God, I'm moving forward in faith, let's interpret these dreams. And so Pharaoh tells Joseph his dreams and you could just imagine Joseph leaning forward, listening with all of his being, confident that the Lord is there with him. He's very intentional in this moment as he listens to Pharaoh's two dreams. And then he responds, 
Joseph responded, both of Pharaoh's dreams mean the same thing. God is telling Pharaoh in advance what he's about to do. The seven healthy cows and the seven healthy heads of grain both represent seven years of prosperity. The seven thin scrawny cows that came up later and the seven thin heads of grain withered by the east wind represent seven years of famine. This will happen just as I have described it, for God has revealed to Pharaoh in advance what he's about to do. The next seven years will be a period of great prosperity throughout the land of Egypt. But afterward, there will be seven years of famine so great that all the prosperity will be forgotten in Egypt. Famine will destroy the land. This famine will be so severe that even the memory of the good years will be erased. All right, so here's what Joseph says, just in case you missed it. The markets are going to go gangbusters for 28 straight quarters. Everything's going to go up and to the right. GDP will smash Wall Street estimates. The economy will be cranking on all cylinders. Unemployment at all-time lows. You'll have money and food and opportunity and entertainment coming out your ears for seven years straight. Then it's going to get real tough real quick. You won't be able to catch a break. Markets will tumble. Savings will be depleted. Credit will freeze. Equities erased. There'll be a huge need for assistance programs. People will not only lose their jobs and their homes, they'll lose food security as well for seven years. Prosperity first and then famine. And the the prosperity is going to be greater than you've ever known. But the famine will be even greater than that. And then he says, verse 32... As for having two similar dreams, it means that these events have been decreed by God, and he will soon make them happen. Oh, that's why there are two dreams right there. See, two dreams when Joseph was 17, and he dreamed that his brothers and his parents would bow down before him. And then two dreams coming to Joseph when he was in prison, uh, to the baker and to the cupbearer. And then now, Pharaoh, two dreams. And the two dreams are God's confirmation of the reality of the dream. And I would say it's a confirmation of God desiring you to be in a life group. Okay? (laughs) I'm just telling you what the Bible says, guys. All right. Track with me. All right. Here we go. If you're filling in the blanks, peace comes from confidence in God's plan. It comes from confidence in God's plan. And throughout this series, we've talked about Joseph's confidence in God's plan. That's why the subtitle of this series is God Still Has a Plan, because no matter what Joseph faced, he was confident that God had a plan. He was confident that God had a plan when he was in his father's home receiving the dreams from the Lord. And then when his brothers attacked him and ripped his robe and beat him and sold him into slavery, and then he went into exile in in Egypt, Joseph was still confident that God had a plan. And then when he was falsely accused by Potiphar's wife, when he was wrongfully imprisoned by Potiphar, uh, he he was confident still that God had a plan. And and nothing along the way was able to shake Joseph's confidence that God still had a plan. And friends, that's where our peace comes from. When we live with that conviction that God still has a plan for us. And I would say that nowhere have we seen God's, um, or, or Joseph's confidence in God's plan more powerfully evidenced than in this passage right here that we're about to jump into. I want you to understand that Joseph right now has already interpreted Pharaoh's dream, and so he's golden. 
Pharaoh had a need, and Joseph helped meet that need, and, and he could just be quiet right there. He doesn't need to say anything else. He doesn't need to risk anything else. Pharaoh had a question. Joseph answered the question. He could just sit back and expect a reward of some kind. Maybe he gets out of prison. Maybe he gets to borrow Pharaoh's barge, take a cruise on the Nile. Something good. We don't know. But he didn't need to take a risk in this moment. And yet, I want you to see, Joseph is still so confident in the Lord's plan. Joseph is still so humble before God. He's not afraid to move ahead in faith. And so even though Joseph could be quiet right now, Joseph keeps talking. Look what he says. Joseph says, therefore, Pharaoh should find an intelligent and wise man and put him in charge of the entire land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh should appoint supervisors over the land and let them collect one-fifth of all the crops during the seven good years. Have them gather all the food and produce the good year, in the good years that are just ahead and bring it to Pharaoh's storehouses. Store it away and guard it there so there will be food in the cities. That way there will be enough to eat when the seven years of famine come to the land of Egypt. Otherwise, this famine will destroy the land. What does he do? Still leaning into the inspiration of the Lord, Joseph tells Pharaoh what to do. Think about that for a moment. Joseph says to Pharaoh, so what you need to do is find a wise, intelligent man to run the nation. Now, that's a little bit of a slap in the face to the man who's actually running the nation. Right? He, he says to Joseph, or Joseph says to Pharaoh, you need to find a wise, intelligent person and put him in charge of the entire nation. And then Joseph reveals this kind of a beautiful plan of restraint and stewardship. He, it's actually a taxation plan, if you will. He's saying, look, you need to, to appoint supervisors over all the regions. You're going to gather one-fifth of all of the crop, all the harvest, all the produce, and you're, you're going to store that away. You're going to do that for seven years. So when the tough time comes, you will have enough food to feed your people. And I would just suggest this to you as you read. This is an incredible risky moment for Joseph. It requires incredible confidence that God has a plan. But I would suggest to you, it's probably not the first time Joseph has done this. I would, I would, I would just, I'm, you know, I'm, the phrase that came to mind, I would, I'd bet money, but that's probably not a good thing to say, like, in a sermon. But if, if we were in a holy betting scenario... I would bet that Joseph probably did something similar to this in a conversation with the prison warden, which was why the prison warden was quick to give favor to Joseph and promote him to be in charge of the whole prison. And if you go back further, I would bet that Joseph said something like this to Potiphar when he was a slave in Potiphar's house, which is why Potiphar gave him favor and elevated him to be the person who's in charge of all of Potiphar's estate. And if you go back even further, I would bet that Joseph suggested something like this to his dad, which is why his dad favored Joseph and even gave him the special robe, which was kind of a supervisory robe over the rest of his brothers. See, my strong inclination is that Joseph had made a lifetime habit of leaning into the Lord, listening to the Lord, and being confident in God's plan. Nevertheless, he'd never had an audience as big as this one. 
He'd never been speaking to a person as powerful as the person that he's speaking to right now. So I can also imagine that after he tells Pharaoh what to do, he probably becomes quiet and his heart starts to pound and he wonders, how is Pharaoh going to react to this? And then the Bible tells us. Joseph's suggestions were well received by Pharaoh and his officials. Oh, thank God, right? Oh, whew, okay. I'm not going to be impaled for this suggestion. This reveals, I think, a little favor from the Lord, as the other experiences do. And then God, in fact, opens the floodgates of heaven and just rains abundance down on Joseph, because this is what Pharaoh says. So Pharaoh asks his officials, can we find anyone else like this man so obviously filled with the Spirit of God? Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, since God has revealed the meaning of the dreams to you, clearly no one else is as intelligent or wise as you are. You will be in charge of my court, and all the people will take orders from you. Only I, sitting on my throne, will have a rank higher than yours. Wow. So this is quite a promotion. From prison to Pharaoh's right hand, you can imagine the open mouths of every single one of Pharaoh's number twos all around the court. You could imagine someone say, I have served Pharaoh for 30 years. Even in those middle years when all he had were crazy, dumb ideas, I was still loyal to Pharaoh. And I clawed and I climbed my way up the ladder in court. And finally, I am here. And I have been wise. And I have been intelligent. And I have been loyal. And this prisoner takes a weird guess at some random dream. We don't even know if it's going to come true. And now he's my boss. <laughs> oh, but I love it. Yay, Joseph. You could imagine, right? Like that, that's just crazy, that kind of incredible, quick promotion. I mean, that's the biggest promotion in the history of the universe. Okay, maybe not, but, but it's big, right? To go from powerless in prison to second most powerful in the world. You woke up in a jail cell and you're going to go to sleep in a palace? And that's incredible, right? And there's some other perks associated with this promotion. Pharaoh said to Joseph, I hereby put you in charge of the entire land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh removed his signet ring from his hand and placed it on Joseph's finger. The Bible doesn't say this, but that's the one ring to rule them all, one ring to bind them, one ring to... Uh, I'm just kidding. Uh, he dressed him in fine linen clothing and hung a gold chain around his neck. Then he had Joseph ride in the chariot reserved for his second-in-command... And wherever Joseph went, the command was shouted, kneel down. So Pharaoh put Joseph in charge of all of Egypt. And Pharaoh said to him, I'm Pharaoh, but no one will lift a hand or foot in the entire land of Egypt without your approval. So some perks, right? You get, you get the ring and the gold chain and you get fine linen, right? He dresses them in a nice robe. Restoration from the, the robe that his father had made for him that was ripped from him and it was covered in blood. But now that, that's restored. And you get the company car. It's the horse-drawn Ferrari. And you get runners to go alongside you. Make way. Kneel down. I got Joseph here. And, and, and it's interesting, right? He says, look, I'm Pharaoh. I have a rank above you. 
But then he says, kind of hyperbole here, he says, no one will, will lift a hand or a foot without your approval. It's hyperbole, because you can imagine, they, they don't like take a step, Joseph, may I? You know, another, Joseph, may I? Like, that would be really counterproductive. But, but, the, but the point Pharaoh's making is this, you have power, and the responsibility that accompanies this power, and the opulence of wealth that accompanies the responsibility that comes with this power. And, and so now, Joseph has an opportunity. He's been stewarding opportunities his, his entire life. He's been living in hope. He's been helpful. He's been living faithful and fearless his entire life. And now he's given this kind of a platform. The fruitfulness of Joseph's life is now beyond imagination, but it's because of his long faithfulness. And friends, that's where our peace comes from in the end. That's that last truth on your outline, that peace comes from long faithfulness leading to incredible fruitfulness. That's true for you, and that's true for me. Our challenge is that we live with a singular faithfulness to the Lord. We live with our hope in Jesus Christ. We live seeking to be helpful as much as we can. We, we have received love from the Lord. Now we seek to offer love to all those around us, those in our neighborhoods, those in our cities, our communities, that, that, that we want to be not only the recipients of grace, but those who offer grace as well. And we do this, this vision of a long faithfulness in a singular direction because we know that at some point God will bring incredible fruitfulness, that God will increase our influence, that God will allow us to touch the exact right life that God wants us to touch, right? That long faithfulness leads to incredible fruitfulness. And that's the source of our peace today. And of course, uh, we see what happens in verse 47. As predicted, for seven years, the land produced bumper crops. During those years, Joseph gathered all the crops grown in Egypt and stored the grain from the surrounding fields in the cities. He piled up huge amounts of grain like sand on the seashore. Finally, he stopped keeping records because there was too much to measure. So, he responded to the opportunity that God brought him well. And he stewarded the office that Pharaoh gave him with excellence by being wonderfully effective. And it's so much so that the story leads to the poetic just a little bit. He had gathered so much. It was like, you know, mountains of grain. It was like sand on the seashore that, that God had come through with his promise of seven years of prosperity. And Joseph had come through by stewarding the opportunity really, really well. Long faithfulness, incredible fruitfulness. And again, I say this because I want to encourage you today. I want to encourage you to be faithful. I want to encourage you to not grow weary. I want to encourage you to not lose heart. That we look instead to Jesus. He is the source of our hope. He is the source of our strength. He's the one who, get, who gives us heart, right? Take heart, he says. I have overcome the world. And so we look to Jesus, we take heart, and we stay faithful, trusting that there is a fruitful day ahead. Now, what is interesting about this is that so many beautiful things have happened in Joseph's life. 
we actually leave him today in a palace. We leave him in a place where life is good for Joseph. This is the first message in this series. We've been able to say that. It's always been bad for Joseph. It's always been tough. It's always been difficult circumstances. But today, we can breathe deep and we can leave with a smile. Joseph's in a good place, sleeping on some nice Egyptian silk tonight, okay? But the story is not completely resolved. In the first place, there is still some deep woundedness from Joseph's past. He's still carrying grief. He's still carrying hurt, and it impacts, it impacts the way he parents. It impacts some things about the way he sees the world. And the second thing is that we have not yet seen the dream that God gave Joseph when he was 17 years old come to pass. So, you've got to come back next week. <laughs> but right now, I just want to ask you to bow your heads and close your eyes. And let's just ask Jesus to give us that long faithfulness. Let's ask Jesus to make us humble before him. Let's ask Jesus to make us confident in him. And let's ask the Lord to give us the courage to move forward in faith. And Jesus, we do ask you these things. We want to thank you for meeting us here. We want to thank you for opening up your word, showing us how relevant a situation 4,000 years ago can actually be to our lives today. My prayer is that it does bring hope and help for all of us today. My prayer is that all of our hearts could come before you humbly, thanking you and praising you for giving us every ability and every talent and every gift you've given us. We are so thankful for you. I want to thank you for giving us courage today. And we want to be found faithful in moving forward in faith with you. We are confident that you are at work in our lives, behind the scenes. You're at work, and we love you for it, Jesus. And we do ask that our long faithfulness to you would result in incredible fruitfulness. We ask this for your glory. And we want to say thanks, Jesus. Thank you for your grace covering our lives. Thank you for your love that you display so clearly to us. We embrace your love now. We ask you that you would show us how we reveal your love to others. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you.